Let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. God, the pressures and trials of this world often throw us into confusion, to doubt or despair. I pray right now that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us your wisdom and confidence in your plan that we would know for certain that you are in control and you are working all things together for our good, for those who trust in Christ. Please, God, give us that certainty which overflows in happiness, joyful delight in your good work. Amen. Do not believe everything your eyes tell you or your ears tell you to listen to. I think that I'm a pretty good driver. I've got 20 years experience driving and I've logged hundreds of thousands of miles on the highways as a former transportation engineer. And because I was an engineer, I know the rules and the design of the road fairly well, so I'm really confident when I am behind the wheel. And yet, a few months ago, while I was driving the same route to work that I take every single day, I came to an intersection that I have to cross two lanes of accelerating traffic, which can be quite difficult. And I waited for a gap, and when I finally noticed that I had a big enough gap, I stepped on the accelerator to cross those two lanes, and suddenly, out of nowhere, this bright red car appeared right in front of me. It wasn't there before. I don't know how I missed it, and suddenly it appeared right in front of me. I slammed on the brake and swerved out of the way, stopping in the lane to look up and realize there's a concrete mixer truck barreling down on me. So I step on the gas and drive back in to the lane and cross the highway just in time to avoid disaster. My heart was racing and I'm sure those drivers were thinking, what in the world was that moron thinking? But at that moment, I was completely blind to reality. I literally did not see them. And in spite of my own blind foolishness, God preserved my life. Do not believe everything you see with your eyes and hear with your own ears. This is not only good advice for driving, but for your entire life. Your senses are not a reliable indicator of what, is going, what God is doing in the world. Many of you might be feeling the weight of this massive world shifting all around you. You might realize how small you are in this huge planet full of almost 8 billion people. You, the world shifts. You have so many decisions to make which could drastically change your life. And at various times, the chaos of this world catches up to you and it leads you to despair or doubt. It might even throw you to trust God's goodness. You wonder, is he near? Is he in control? N nothing that I see all around me is in line with what I expect God to be doing in this world. When these moments come, you'll need to remind yourself not to trust what your eyes and ears are telling you. In our text for today, we find John the Baptist wondering the same thing as he sits in jail and hears rumors about what Jesus is doing in the world. But then Jesus gives John something far greater to put his trust in than his own senses. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Quite a few verses to get through today. 
Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 19, and we will see together that we have something far greater to put our confidence in. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling to their playmates, We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our main idea that we'll be exploring today through these 19 verses is do not trust in your own senses, but trust in the sovereign plan of God in Christ. Do not trust in your senses, your eyes and your ears, but trust in the sovereign plan of God in Christ. We'll take a look at that idea through this text in three main parts. In the first six verses, Explore John's doubts, why he's feeling this way, and then what Jesus has to say to encourage him. And then we'll shift in 7 to 15 to Jesus' confidence in God's unfolding plan, his redemptive plan of history. And then in verses 16 and 19, we'll see how God is vindicated when his wisdom proves true despite people's blindness. Chapter 11 is a bit of a jump considering where we've come from. It feels like this abrupt change, like Jesus has completely changed his trajectory. The last few chapters, we've talked about how Jesus is putting on display his powerful authority as king. He's the lawgiver and judge, as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes down from the mountain and heals people. He commands spiritual, the spiritual realm. He even controls creation. And then Incredibly, in chapter 10, he takes the same authority and hands some of it off to his own disciples and sends them out. He says, I am sending you out into this world, into the cities and villages, to help me on this kingdom quest. But then instead of following 
that commissioning of his disciples with a story of how they went out and did this, we actually see that Jesus himself went out into the cities to teach and preach. What a marvelous leader he is, isn't he? He commands his disciples to go on this dangerous mission, and then he goes out and does it himself. He doesn't sit back and watch. He jumps right in, going in front of them in this dangerous but really exciting work of transforming the world. And then we have this abrupt change to John the Baptist. Where did that come from? Who is this John? Well, let's just read the text again and then ask, figure out where John came from. Verses 2 through 6. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So where is John? Suddenly, how does he suddenly get in jail? The last time we saw him he was in chapter 3, he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea near the Jordan River preaching condemnation upon the religious rulers, calling them a brood of vipers, calling them to repent because the kingdom of heaven was near. And then he baptizes anybody who comes down and says, you're right, I'm not prepared for the coming king. Please prepare me. But now we see he's in jail. Later on, we find in Matthew 14 that the ruler, the king of Judea at the time, had arrested him and put him in jail because John was so bold to think that he could preach against the king's affair with his brother's wife. He was making the people in the palace look bad. So the king arrested him, put him in the dungeon where he wouldn't be a bother anymore. Nobody could hear him. And so now John is facing death for standing boldly for God's righteousness, anticipating that a new king is coming soon anyway, I introduced him to the land already, so he'll come and get rid of those other kings, and he'll set me free. So all is good. I can face this. I'll preach boldly. But now that he's sitting in jail, he hears these rumors. Jesus is out performing these incredible miracles. He's releasing others from all kinds of bondage, bondage to demons, bondage to sickness and sin. He's gathering people everywhere who are rejoicing, singing and dancing along with him like he's starting this wonderful, peaceful revolution. All of this while John is languishing in prison. What's the deal? John introduces the Messiah. He goes out in front of them, is bold to preach against the corrupt political and religious establishment. And then he ends up on death row while Jesus gets to go about free, enjoying all the benefits of his ministry. Voices of doubt are surrounding him. He was certain his whole life that he was the forerunner to the Messiah. He said so at the Jordan River when he baptized Jesus. But now this kingdom and its king aren't quite measuring up to what he was expecting. He may have been thinking like everyone else that when the Messiah came, he would usher in a kingdom of peace. He would just ask the kings to leave or he would come and conquer them and quick step in on his throne. But as he looks around with his eyes and he listens to the rumors with his ears, it's not adding up. So in verse 2, he sends messengers to get some answers. 
The messengers ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Basically, they're asking, hey, Jesus, are you the Messiah or not? Because your messenger, the guy who prepared your way is sitting in jail and he could sure use your help right now. When are you going to come and help him out? And now Jesus' response seems a little bit strange if they're asking that question. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Thanks a lot, but that's exactly the reason why John's filled with doubt in the first place. He's been hearing these reports of Jesus healing people and freeing people all over the land. But it's not so much the content of what Jesus says that's his answer, but how he structures it. He gives him the same information. He quotes some Bible verses, essentially, to say, here's all you need to know and to give him a clearer interpretation of what's going on. Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is a list of things that Jesus has been doing in chapters 8 and 9, but it's so much more than just a list of Jesus' deeds. He says it in such a way that should send any good Bible student, any good Israelite's mind back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah spoke of this coming kingdom and a king who would, when he arrived, would bring miraculous restoration to the land, to weak and needy, broken, poor people. You can find these things all over the book of Isaiah in chapter 26 and 29, 35, 53, 61. It's everywhere. The king would have amazing power to come in and influence people, to heal them, to raise the dead. This is the good news he preaches. So Jesus' response is essentially a simple, yes, I am the Messiah, just as Isaiah foretold. And he says it in such a way to reframe this conversation around the sovereign work of God throughout history in a way that shows I'm fulfilling prophecy right in front of your eyes. He's telling John, but there's more to the story that you can see. There's so many prophecies in Isaiah that these are just a few of them, but I'll also have to suffer too in Isaiah 53. So he gives this mild rebuke to John, a little bit of an encouragement saying, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Another way that you could translate that is to say, happy is the one who does not stumble over me, who does not doubt because of me, who's not tripped up because of what they see me doing. What God is up to in this world is so often really confusing. And it's not because God himself is confusing or his plan is really difficult to understand. But because our senses are broken, we can't see or hear properly. We hear reports, we read in the Bible about all these marvelous things that Jesus is doing. We hear news around the world or even in our own city that people's lives are joyfully transformed. But when I look around in my life, all I'm experiencing is pain and suffering and doubt and despair. It doesn't make sense. If Jesus is the king, why do I feel such pain? But here's Jesus calling us just to trust him. He's basically giving John some Bible verses and saying, trust me, here, here's some truth to encourage you. Which to me often is really just 
annoying. When I'm in the midst of suffering and someone says, it's okay, God's working all things together for good. I just want to slap you when you say that. You're not understanding the pain I'm feeling right now. But that's, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. And when you trust him, you can be filled with happiness, with blessedness, even in the face of these struggles, because we can see God is fulfilling his promises. He will complete his mission to save us from this cursed world. And that's what Jesus then emphasizes in his next section. He transitions from John's doubt now, sending away his disciples, and then addressing the crowd by explaining his confidence in what God's doing. He affirms John's ministry before the crowds, telling them that John is right in line with everything all the scriptures predicted. I find this interesting that he didn't give this information to John's disciples to send it back. Man, this is the information that I really need to hear, but perhaps John would be persuaded by just some quotes from the book of Isaiah. The crowds may have been wondering too, though, just like John, how can John be in jail? We saw him preaching and introducing you. How can he be in jail if, you're Jesus, if you, Jesus, are truly the king? And so Jesus gives this series of rhetorical questions in verses 7 to 10 to explain why John is in jail and how exactly this kingdom is going to come into this world. He asks, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Then in verse 7, he asks, maybe you went down to the river to see John, who is like a reed shaking in the wind. You can imagine at the shoreline of the river, these beautiful reeds standing maybe seven feet tall and a breeze comes and they all kind of dance with the wind. He's using this as a metaphor to say, do you think John is just a guy who bends to the cultural winds and gives them whatever they want to hear? Or as Paul said in Ephesians 4, 14, someone who's tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness. Does John strike you as a man who preaches what's popular? Who caves to pressure? Goodness, no. This guy commanded the religious rulers to repent. He called them a brood of vipers. He called out the king, the highest guy in the land, for his adulterous affair. He's no reed shaking under pressure. Nor is he, as verse 8 says, some soft-dressing pushover. The word translated dressed in soft clothing could literally be translated the male passive partner in a same-sex relationship. It's a man who dresses like a woman in order to attract the attention of another man. Jesus uses this shocking imagery to say, John is not a man who's dressing up to impress anybody or to gain their favor. He doesn't need to change his appearance or his message in order to, like the courtiers at a palace, to say, ooh, pick me, pick me. The man wore clothes made of camel hair. He walked around the wilderness. He was dirty. I'm sure he smelled eating locusts, grasshoppers, and honey. He's not interested in your affections. He's a man with a vision from God and bold confidence to proclaim this truth, to take a risk for the coming kingdom. He's a prophet, Jesus says, the last in a line of great prophets. Isaiah and Malachi foretold of 
one prophet who would come and usher in the reign of the Messiah. He would be bold like Isaiah, Elijah, bold like Elijah to walk right into the, the crowd of priests and confront the religious rulers and the kings, the highest authority in the land, even if it cost him his life. But this was always the plan of God in order to bring about a new covenant. It's just a little different than everyone expected. And that's the point of verses 11 to 15. I'll read those again. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus now expresses his great confidence in God's plan to bring about this very moment in redemptive history. John's the greatest prophet yet of all those wonderful prophets that we study in Sunday school. He's the greatest one yet. Not because he has a better message or he did a better job preaching it, because he has so much of a better privilege. All of those old prophets, they had to look forward hundreds, thousands of years into the future to say, it's okay guys, right now looks bad, but I can see into the future. Hundreds of years from now, there's going to be a Messiah and he's going to come and sit on the throne and make everything all new. It'll be great. John is the last of the old covenant prophets. Yes, he is in the New Testament as we look back on it, but the new covenant doesn't start until Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so he's the last one of these old covenant prophets to look forward to the coming Messiah, to the new covenant that's to come. He's saying, or he got to baptize the Messiah. Unlike Elijah or Isaiah or Jeremiah, he got to touch the Messiah. He only had to look forward a matter of minutes, not years. He got to see the beginning of this ministry of the Messiah conquering evil. What a privilege he had to actually witness this Messiah, the fulfillment of so many covenant prophet promises. John is ushering in this new age of redemptive history, closing the age of anticipation, and now ushering in the age of fulfillment. God is faithful. We can see it happening right in front of John's eyes. We can trust his sovereign plan. And then notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 11. This is, this is incredible. He begins with these new covenant promises now. The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. This, John was the greatest old covenant prophet because of this wonderful privilege. And somehow everybody, everybody who is in the new covenant, who is part of the coming kingdom, will be greater than John. How can he say this? What benefit, what privilege do you and I have that John didn't? John got to touch Jesus and hug him and push him underwater and pull him back up. That seems pretty incredible privilege, and we are even more privileged than him. Jesus doesn't explain it, but this is what the whole New Testament is all about. We have so many benefits of being New Covenant believers. We actually get the Holy Spirit to dwell right within us. 
He's not in some city far off in a temple that we have to go to. He's right here today with us, helping us understand his word. And he'll never leave us. We talked about Ezekiel in Sunday school this morning. And in the book of Ezekiel, he left the temple. He'll never leave this temple. And because of that, we will be faithful to the end. It's guaranteed he will help us endure And we will find victory over sin that no saint in the Old Testament could have found. Our forgiveness in the blood of Christ is perfect, everlasting. We are so much more privileged than Abraham and Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all those guys. It is such a joy now to be in the new covenant. But just to set our expectations straight... Jesus explains how this coven, this kingdom is going to grow throughout the world. It might look peachy in Jesus' ministry at the moment. He's, everything seems to be going well. He's growing huge crowds following him. But John is in jail because of this new coming kingdom and the threat it offers to the world. And Jesus, too, is going to begin facing opposition. From here on out in the story, the opposition is only going to ramp up. And anybody who follows him, even after his life, will experience this same violence in one way or another. It's a spiritual war. Flesh and blood, spiritual forces are trying to overthrow Christ's reign in our lives. Jesus told us it was going to be hard back in chapter 10, and now he reminds us this is what the prophets foretold. The kingdom is going to come through suffering. But we can be confident because despite what our eyes and ears are telling us about the world that's all around us, God's plan is unfolding just as he said. He says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This isn't just a throwaway line like, listen up guys, I'm talking to you. But this emphasizes this new phase in salvation history. The idea started with, The prophets, especially in Isaiah, when he's called in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, here am I, send me. And God says, okay, I'm going to send you into a people who have ears but don't hear. And they have eyes but they can't see. They have become so idolatrous that they have become just like their idols. Little statues that have ears and eyes, but they're useless. That's what these people are like. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when the people would have be made of flesh, when he would give them their spirit and they would have ears that could hear. So Jesus is preaching with confidence that now people's ears are going to be opened. So the question is, which type of people are we? Let's conclude with verses 16 and 19. Here we see Jesus contrast those who have ears to see, ears to hear and eyes to see what God's sovereign work in Christ is and those who will continue in their blindness and their deafness. It might be difficult for us to see now because we still see dimly. We need our eyes opened even more, but in the end, God will be vindicated. He will have the victory. His promises will prove to be certain. And Jesus clarifies this point with this little illustration of these kids playing music games. In that culture, if you were celebrating something marvelous that happened in your family, say your son or daughter got married, you would go out into the streets and invite the community in to rejoice with you and dance. You play music and everyone comes out and dance, 
Hooray, congratulations, we're so excited for you. Or if someone died, you would sing a funeral song, a dirge, a song of lament and mourning and invite everyone to come around you and weep with you. And kids see this happening all the time, so they kind of play it as a game. And they're inviting their buddies, hey, I'll play the song and you dance. And they're not dancing. And they're not singing. And Jesus says, this is how blind you guys are in the Old Covenant. This is how you respond to the message that John and I am preaching. John played a dirge. He played the serious funeral song. He called for repentance. He warned of impending doom. Repent! And the people just brushed him off like he was some crazy demon-possessed man. Jesus tried the opposite tact. He came in celebrating, eating and drinking, inviting people in to enjoy the benefits of the new covenant promises. And we see they still reject him. It's not the message or how the message is proclaimed, but the blindness of people's hearts that led them to reject the kingdom. And then in verse 19, it says that in the end, God's wisdom will be justified. God's plan will prove in the end to be the best one. Even if you can't see it, God is at work. These verses are so full of practical wisdom. I'm sure at times already you've thought of a couple, but let me wrap up with just two for you to take home and ponder. First, I see in this that we should be bold proclaimers of the gospel. And this doesn't just apply to Jake and me and whoever else stands right here in this pulpit bringing you the word, but it applies to you and your witness. Wherever you work, wherever you live, John was known for being bold. He didn't waver when the pressure of culture, the winds of culture blew. He didn't change in order to sweet talk those who had influence that maybe he could build up a following. He knew the message that God gave him and he proclaimed it. Especially when he saw that he was in the plan of God. And when he realized Jesus can raise people from the dead, I'm all in. Take my head if you want it. It is worth it. This is not an excuse to go about being a jerk. We, some inconsiderate, unnecessarily offensive person that, oh, it doesn't matter how I say it, so I'm just going to tell you to repent because you're an idiot. If the Spirit is in you, you're going to be filled with kindness and peace and patience and gentleness and humility. But this story that Jesus shares with us in the end shows that it's not really how we say it that turns people away. Our culture is offended by everything, it seems. And they tell us, well, maybe if you guys were a little nicer, if you said it in a little bit different way, then, then people would listen to you better. You hear that, that proverb, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. But Jesus says that's not exactly true. John was the one serious proclaiming judgment. Jesus was the one inviting people with celebration into the coming kingdom, into a good life. And both of them were rejected because people are blind and deaf to the truth. Instead, we trust in the sovereign plan of God in Christ to work through the proclamation of the gospel through ordinary fools like you and me. Don't trust in how people respond to it. If God's opening their eyes, they will come. So be bold. And finally, we learn from John's story here to suffer well. John was in prison for his ministry while Jesus was out finding great success. 
Sometimes you might find yourself suffering, you're in pain, you're ill, and everyone else seems to be having such a great time out there enjoying life. But once John understood that he was right in line with the plan of God, he was all in. He went for it. He went boldly to his death. Happily. Jesus said, happy are those who are not offended by him. Even in suffering, when our lives don't seem to be going well and everyone else's do, we can be happy because God is working out his plan to fulfill his promises. And you can be certain of that because the darkest moment in history was also the one of greatest victory. If you don't know how suffering and joy can meet at the same time, look at the cross as the greatest moment greatest moment of darkness and glory meeting. Jesus' death on the cross is the world's most, or the greatest example of worldly injustice in history. The only innocent man who ever lived condemned to death. God poured out his wrath on his own son. But Jesus volunteered for it with the joy set before him. He accomplished the greatest good for his people in that moment on the cross. So when darkness surrounds you, your eyes and ears fail you, doubts flood your mind, look to Christ in his cross. He doesn't just work out his plan in spite of evil, but he orchestrates all the wicked decisions of men for the good of his people, for those called according to his purposes. He is working out your suffering. And because Jesus is the king, you can count on him. So do not trust in your senses, but trust in the sovereign plan of God in Christ. Let's pray. God, too much we know we are still blind. We still can't hear. Our hearts are still too hard. So would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are doing? Give us wisdom to understand and know that your ways are so much better than what we can think or expect. Give us, God, faith to not stumble when the trials come our way and flood us with the happiness that is promised when we cast our burdens upon Christ. Send us away from here, a people rejoicing at your good sovereign plan in Christ. Amen.